someone was to hand you a, a little white capsule and say, swallow this, it's good for you, you'd probably look at them a little bit sceptically and say, yeah, yeah, really good, th- thank you. And then as soon as they weren't looking, you'd poke it into the nearest pot plant or something like that. Uh, but how different would it be if before the gift of that little white capsule, um, your doctor had just said to you, I'm terribly sorry to have to tell you this, but you have epoxy nasal congestivitis. That's a disease I just made up, by the way. It means Harold died up the nose. Um, and in about 10 minutes, the congestion will harden and you won't be able to breathe and you will die. But here is a cure for it. And if you take this tablet in the next 10 minutes, you'll be cured. You'd probably be very happy to take that tablet, wouldn't you? Um, you see, to be able to appreciate the good news of the cure, first we have to understand the bad news of the disease. And it's the same with the gospel. Uh, to fully appreciate the good news of the gospel, first we have to understand the bad news, the terrible news, the awful news of the very real trouble we humans are in. And so in this section of Romans, Paul is relentless in telling us all about the bad news. And so as I said last week, for the next few weeks, it's going to be like we're going through this long, dark tunnel. Um, but my, how much brighter the light of the gospel is going to be when we come out on the other side. And so we began to hear last week about the downward spiral, both on a personal level, but probably more so at a society level. And without Jesus in our lives, there is this downward spiral of godlessness and unrighteousness. Unrighteousness leads people to turn their backs on God. They become godless or they turn to idols. And when they reject God, God hands them over to sin and their unrighteousness increases. And so they reject God some more and then so God hands them over to more sin. And it just gets worse and worse and worse and it's a downward spiral. And we can see this happening in our society today. Our sin, our attitude toward God has caused us as a society to reject God. And as our society has become more and more godless, it has become more and more morally corrupt and bankrupt, so much so that we don't even recognise morality when we see it anymore. And an example of this uh, is the bill brought to the Queensland Parliament this very week by the member for Cairns, Rob Pine. He was asking our Parliament to legalise abortion with no limitations. He was proposing that it was okay to murder unborn babies right up until nine months, right up until they were due to be born. That was his proposal. By the way, many babies are born earlier than nine months, as you ladies probably know better than I do. Um, But the ACT, Victoria and Tasmania already have these same laws in place. and what's considered late-term abortions, uh, I think anything after about 24 weeks or something, all they have to do is get the approval of two doctors to, to carry it out. And those two doctors can both work at the one abortion clinic. We have become so immoral as a society that we can't even tell right from wrong anymore. And all of this discussion in Romans of the downward spiral is the explanation of why the gospel is so precious. 
Paul began with a series of statements, each explaining the other. I'm eager to preach the gospel. Why? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Why? Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed. Why? Because the wrath of God is being revealed. And last week we spoke about why the wrath of God is being revealed. It's because people have rejected God. Um, so that slide there, that's a bit of a summary of, of last week. Um, the wrath of God is being revealed because people have rejected God. But today we're going to be focusing more on how the wrath of God is being revealed. If you can have a bit of a look at that cartoon up there, I'll give you a moment to read it and take it in. That cartoon is a humorous illustration of how most people believe the wrath of God is expressed. Um, We do something really bad, we commit this terrible sin, and God punishes us somehow. And here we have this Gary Larson cartoon of God at his computer. His finger is poised over the smite button. Smite isn't a word that we use much anymore. The South Africans know smite. Kill them, right? Smite. Um... And uh, and this poor unsuspecting soul is about to walk under a piano suspended by a rope. Now, that's how many of us might view the wrath of God. But I, I was actually a little surprised as I studied this first chapter of Romans how the wrath of God actually is being expressed today. Our society have rejected God. They've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worship and serve the creature rather than creator. Uh, humanism does that, by the way. We, we worship the creature ourselves rather than the creator, God, in whose image we were made. And so the wrath of God is this. God gave them up. Three times it tells us this. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them up to dishonourable passions. Women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Well, that can be lesbianism or buggery. And men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. Right, so he's describing homosexuality in all of its forms. God gave them up to a debased mind. That, that means a worthless mind to do what ought not to be done. Right now, most moralists will look at Romans chapter one and go, well, well there you go. There it is. It's really up homosexuality there. Uh, homosexuality, that attracts the wrath of God. Homosexuals, they're going to be punished for what they've done. But that's not actually the full story of what's being said here. What's being punished is godlessness. The godlessness of society is being punished. And what it's saying is homosexuality getting a go on in in society is the wrath of God. It's not saying that that's what's attracting the wrath of God. This is an example of the wrath of God. And not only homosexuality, God gave them up to a debased mind. 
What that means is as unrighteousness increases and as ungodliness increases, the people of society will not even be able to comprehend the difference between immorality and morality. They won't be able to tell the difference between right and wrong, between good and evil, between vile and beautiful. The mind gets so out of touch with God and with reality that it cannot even comprehend what is right and what is wrong. That's what a debased mind is. And so this is a very timely Bible reading for us. Romans chapter 1 is describing a society who in their thinking have become so perverted that they don't even know that men having sex with men and women having sex with women is wrong. And here is something that we need to understand. This in itself, is the wrath of God. When we harden our hearts against God, God will make them even harder. That's the wrath of God. That's what happened with Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. And so God hardened Pharaoh's heart even more. And when a society in its unrighteousness turns its back on God... The wrath of God means he increases their unrighteousness. And it increases and increases and increases until we're totally debased. And Paul isn't finished yet. By the time we get through this section of Romans, every hint of self-righteousness that you might feel or I might feel is going to be totally stripped away. And we will realise that without Christ... We are totally worthless, not even able to tell right from wrong. And our only hope is in Jesus Christ, the Saviour. Now, I've sort of skipped ahead a little bit there because uh, I just love to preach the good news. So I've got to keep hinting at it because we're in this long, dark tunnel and we just need to know that the light's still there. We're, it, the tunnel does come to an end, but we're not out of the tunnel yet. When people reject God... God gives them up to a debased mind, a worthless mind, to do what ought not to be done. And you might have nodded your head when I said that and agreed, oh, yeah, yeah, yep, yep, that's sexual immorality, it's running rampant in all its forms. But it doesn't stop at sexual immorality. The finger that we might be wagging and pointing at somebody else when we read that, well, by the time we finish through this, it may very well be pointing back at ourselves by the end of these few verses. Verse 29 says that they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And he lifts them out and we're going to have a list up there shortly. Uh, evil, I guess that means all kinds of wickedness. Greed or covetousness, that's, that's striving to have more than what we need. And it's usually accompanied by depriving others of what they do need. Malice or depravity, that means just general badness. And it goes on, they're full of envy. Well, we know what envy is, don't we? Um, oh, I wish I had her figure. Oh, I wish I had his muscles. Or, oh, how come he gets to drive a car like that and I've got the bomb that I've got? Or, oh, I'd really like to have a house like that one. Full of envy. Full of murder. You know, envy often leads to murder. Uh, the jealous husband kills his wife in a rage. The uh, armed robbery, because he, he wants to have what other people have, well, the armed robbery leads to murder. 
pregnant woman, well, she wants to have the freedom that other people have, and so she gets an abortion. It says they are full of strife. All right, that's conflict. Some people are pretty good at causing upset wherever they go. If you don't believe me, just watch a few brothers and sisters in action sometimes. Um, they might even be grown-up brothers and sisters just niggling each other all the time. Niggle, 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 just causing strife. Uh, full of deceit. That means we try to deceive someone. We try to trick them. Uh, think dishonest used car salesman. That's probably a good example. Uh, full of maliciousness. That means someone's actions might seem okay on the surface, but they're actually conniving inside and thinking, oh, I think if I can do this, then that'll disrupt that. And they are gossips. Talking about someone behind the back, spreading confidential rumours about others. We all know Christians don't gossip, don't we? They just share prayer requests. Yeah. They are slanderers. Uh, telling untruths which defames, defame someone's character. They are haters of God. Uh, I saw a pretty good example of this during the week. I actually um, watched a bit of a YouTube video clip, clip of a uh, discussion between the well-known atheist Richard Dawkins and, um, and, a, and a Christian. And, um, and man, oh man, that man really hates God. Uh, and you... Yeah, he writes books called The God Delusion and things like that. And it's interesting, you know, how, how much hatred can someone have for God when they don't even believe that he exists? Um, they are insolent, which means they're rude or arrogant or they show a lack of respect. Haughty, which means to be filled with pride. Boastful, well, you know what that means. It means to have so much pride that you've got to tell everybody about how good you are. Uh, they are inventors of evil. Every day there's new ways being invented of doing evil. Uh, why does anyone create a computer virus anyway? What do they get out of it? I mean, it's, it's just a way of disrupting society and causing millions or even billions of dollars worth of trouble and heartache across the globe. And then you've got terrorists who build suicide bombs and they mail anthrax spores to government agencies. Sexting. That wasn't around when I went to school. Internet porn, designer drugs, all new ways of doing evil. And I'm sure there's a lot that are being invented today that I've never even heard of. They're disobedient to parents. And many parents won't even discipline the kids when they are disobedient. They are foolish. Uh, the Greek word actually means unable to comprehend. Because of their rejection of God, they simply cannot comprehend the will of God. They are faithless. Now, that means they don't keep their promises. They'll break a treaty. They'll break a contract. You know, if they have to, they'll keep the contract to the letter of the law, but certainly not to the spirit of its intent. Uh, they are heartless, which means they're without affection, and ruthless, which means you better not get in their way because they'll walk straight over the top of you. They're hard and without compassion or pity or mercy. Now, all of these, not attributes, I had to actually think for a while, what, what, what's the word? Um, uh, uh, deficiencies of character. All of these deficiencies of character are very commonplace in society. 
And these are all the unrighteousness that is increasing in this world as an expression of the wrath of God. Now, I said to you, by the time we get through this list, you might see that our pointing fingers may should actually be pointing right back at ourselves because we've each had little hints of some of these in our lives, haven't we? We may even be proud of having some of these characteristics. Oh, yeah, a little bit of heartlessness and ruthlessness. That's what makes me a good manager. You know, um, who of us at some po- point haven't stirred up a bit of strife or had a little bit of maliciousness stored away in our hearts or shared a juicy piece of gossip? Even murder by Jesus' standard Even if I'm angry with my brother, I've got murder in my heart and we know God judges the heart. So by now we should be getting a little bit of a hint that none of us are righteous, not one of us. Paul hasn't stopped yet, there's still more bad news to come. Because most of us might say, oh, I didn't know it was wrong. But he tells us that none of us have an excuse. He tells us that they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. It's not only Christians who know this. In fact, almost invariably, whenever I've had a discussion with an unbeliever about homosexuality, even though they've never read a Bible in their life, they know that the scriptures prescribe the death penalty. Most people know that. What they don't know and don't understand is that this was part of the laws that God had given for Israel to live by in their land and God doesn't expect Christians to go around killing homosexuals. Um, But they do know that it is God's decree that it deserves death. See, people generally have some degree of awareness that the moral outrages they commit are wrong and therefore deserve to be punished by God. And it's not just homosexuality that deserves death. Being disobedient to parents, murderous hearts, inventing evil. The list just goes on and on and on. And eventually we'll read, when we get to chapter 3, we'll read, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in chapter 6 we'll read, for the wages of sin is death. And by the time we get to there, we will understand that all of us are guilty. Not one of us is righteous. We all have sinned and we all deserve death. There's something very important here, though. It is not those who are tempted by these things who deserve death. It's those who practice them. You might be tempted to covet or tempted to gossip, or tempted to sexual immorality. But it's giving in to the temptation that earns punishment. Okay, now at this point in the reading, we get to the pinnacle of the bad news, or perhaps to the very bottom of the manure heap, the very lowest of the low. Verse 32 says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Why is that the lowest of the low? 
having a personal temptation that you struggle with and battle with and perhaps give in to is bad enough. But worse than that, the lowest of the low, the, the, the most, the, the biggest example of a debased mind is when one can make a detached, impersonal judgment and give their approval to those who practice these things, even if you're not tempted with it yourself. There is nothing more repulsive to our God than to be so godless and so depraved that one would give their approval to those who live out all of the immorality and perversions of a world gone down the gurgler. Friends, we're at this point in Australia right now. We are living what's described in Romans chapter 1. Right now in the federal election campaign, the issue of same-sex marriage is front and centre for the people of Australia. Currently, the position in Australia is marriage is for a man and a woman to come together in union as one flesh. But of course, there are those who would redefine what marriage is. And so there's been a whole bunch of same-sex marriage bills before our parliaments. And in this election campaign... The leader for the coalition, Malcolm Turbull, has made it very clear that he personally is all for same-sex marriage. And he's promised that if the coalition get into government, then he will hold a plebiscite. Now, a plebiscite, for those who don't know what it is, means in an election-like setting, people will be able to cast their vote as to whether they want it or not. It's just an information-gathering thing. The government won't be bound by a plebiscite but it's just an information gathering, so they'll say, oh, X number of percent of the people of Australia are for it, X number are against it, Mm, what are we going to do about that now? Um, So the government won't be bound by it. The Labor Party, however, have said that this is one of the first things they're going to do if they get into government. They'll rewrite the Marriage Act so that men can marry men and women can marry women. And they've said regardless of what the Australian people say in any plebiscite that may or may not be held, as soon as they regain control of the parliament, it'll be in and it'll be one of the first things that they do. Uh, The Greens, of course, well, they would have done it years ago. Now, with all of this going on, there's something else which is preventing us from discussing it openly and honestly. In every state in Australia, there are anti-discrimination acts of various types and the Christian lobby have asked for these anti-discrimination acts to be suspended for the duration of the discussion in the lead-up to the plebiscite so that free speech can be had, so that people can say what they believe without being afraid of being hauled up before the courts under this anti-discrimination acts. Last week... The Attorney-General, George Brandis, indicated that that won't happen, uh, which is a bit of a problem uh, because when the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Hobart put out a pamphlet promoting the traditional view of marriage between a man and a woman, same-sex advocates reported him to the Human Rights Commission and they have since ruled that he has a case to answer to. Um, And it was only last week that the Anti-Discrimination Commissioner decided not to proceed with that case because the complainant withdrew her complaint. Uh, But if that complaint hadn't been withdrawn, 
that bishop would have to answer to the Anti-Discrimination Commission. And I sort of suspect that if an activist took exception to this message today, I could find myself before the courts, just like the Roman Catholic Archbishop was. Uh, But my first allegiance must always be to God. And if I'm going to preach on Romans chapter 1, then my job as a preacher is to be completely open and honest with what the scriptures are telling us. At a time such as this, the church must boldly speak out and speak God's truth into this debate. Now, I doubt we'll be listened to, but we must not shy away from it. And the cost can be high. The cost can be very high. And at about this point, I think I need to share with you a bit of a personal experience of mine, which most of you probably already know. Uh, if I didn't if I didn't mention it, it would be like this big old elephant in the room that we're trying to <laughs> skirt around and nobody mentions it. Right now is when the community are talking about it and the church needs to be very clear about what marriage is. But also we have to be very clear that homosexual sex is not normal. It is not good and it is a sign of God's wrath in the world. It's not the only sign, but it is a sign. And this is where it gets personal for me. We already heard that the lowest of the low is when one can make a detached, impersonal judgment and give their approval to those who practice these things. That's the lowest of the low. It is the ultimate state of fallenness to say to someone who has fallen into a sin or who is questioning whether it is a sin or not, to be able to say to them, you don't need to worry about it. It's all good. You keep doing it. It's almost three years now since the Lord said to me, it's time for this church in St George to get out of the denomination that it's in. He said to me, the time for preaching has finished. The time for judgment is here. Get out. I, I had struggled with my position in, the denomina- in that denomination for a long time. It had already decided that there was no problem with a minister being a practising homosexual. Uh, Much of its teaching that was coming out of the body that determined what it believed, its doctrine, was saying that if you're tempted with homosexuality, well, that's how God has made you and you should celebrate it. Uh, There was a push, even at youth events, to normalise the homosexual lifestyle. But the scriptures were telling me, no, this is not how God has made you. This is bad This is God's wrath in society for being so godless. It's not good for you. It's not good for society. It's a path that can only lead to death. Verse 27 says that they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. Do you know that lesbian, gay and bisexual youth are four times more likely to attempt suicide than those with a normal sexuality. It is not the good lifestyle that that it's made out to be. And these people, they need our love. They need to be restored by a loving saviour who can heal their brokenness. 
They don't need to be affirmed that what they're doing is the right thing. They need to be led to a better path. And yet the denomination that I was in had increasingly shifted to approving, ah, this is how God has made you. Celebrate it. Do it. When I left that denomination, and some of you have too, they were just beginning a discussion on whether or not the church should marry same-sex couples. That's three years ago, and they still haven't decided. They've put out discussion papers, which to me seem to be very skewed towards the same-sex argument. They've sought input from councils of the church, which they generally have a history of ignoring. At the last assembly, it was decided not to reaffirm their current position on marriage between a man and a woman. And nor did they voice a rejection of covenants for same-gender unions, because there are already ministers within that church um, who are doing marriage-like ceremonies, and they decided not to reject those. How far has this world fallen for a church to give approval to such unrighteousness? For them to discuss, even to begin to discuss, is, is this okay or is it not? To give one's approval is the very worst expression of the wrath of God. And it's not only being revealed in the world, it was being revealed in the church that I was in. And for me, I realised I had a choice to make. And that choice was, was ultimately a choice between convenience and conviction. It would have been very convenient for me to have stayed in that denomination. I had secure employment, I had a home, I had wonderful friends, the church was growing. It, it had grown from being one of the smallest in town to being the biggest church in town. It had all of the children's and youth programs that you could hope for. It would have been very convenient for me to stay there. But for me, it was a matter of conviction. Was I going to continue in a church who was so godless that it itself had become an expression of the wrath of God? Yeah, my friends were there. It had great facilities, it had wonderful programs, it had the manpower, it was growing, but it was a matter of convenience versus conviction. Now, which do you think God honours most? And which do you think God cares about? Do you think God is looking for a people who value convenience or is he building a people of conviction? And I know a lot of you are in this church because you're convicted. This is where God wants me. It's certainly not convenient being part of a new church plant. There's a lot of jolly hard work. But isn't it great to honour God with our convictions? And there's going to be a lot of choices that you and I have to make as our world becomes more and more debased. And every time, I think the decision's going to basically boil down to am I going to be a person who, of convenience or a person of conviction? Because as Christians, we are going to become more and more out of place in the world that we're in.
Am I going to be a man or woman of convenience or of conviction? In the wrath of God, he has given our society and even church leadership over to a debased mind, a worthless mind, an inability to tell right from wrong. But remember, the gospel is the power of God to save. I'm really looking forward to Romans chapter 12 when we will hear about how the Holy Spirit renews the mind. We've been given over to a debased mind. We, We turn our backs on God and it just becomes so corrupt. We can't even tell right from wrong. But by the time we get to Romans 12, we're going to hear about how the Holy Spirit renews that mind so that our mind is put back in tune with God. But we've still another couple of weeks of the bad news before we get there. Don't, be, don't despair. We will get there, though. 